0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Upper extremity pain can be caused by a wide variety of problems, ranging from joint injuries to compressed nerves. Now, depending on the cause, pain in the arm, forearm, wrist, or hand can start suddenly or it can develop gradually over time. On today's program, we'll learn about
2: diagnosis and treatment of two upper extremity problems, brachial plexus injuries and carpal tunnel syndrome, from a Mayo Clinic expert.
1: Also on the program, we'll discuss a recent Mayo Clinic study showing that eating breakfast regularly can help adults control weight gain. And we'll learn about the dangers of eating too much red meat. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, the brachial plexus is a network of nerves that sends signals from your spinal cord down to your shoulder, your arm, and your hand. Sounds important. Yeah, well, it is. critical as a matter of fact. A brachial plexus injury occurs when these nerves are stretched or compressed or in the most serious cases they're actually ripped apart or torn away from the spinal cord.
2: Oh my goodness. Here to discuss diagnosis and treatment for brachial plexus injuries is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon Dr. Alex Shin. Welcome to the program Dr. Shin. It's nice to meet you.
1: It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Shin, you are not just an orthopedic surgeon. You are not just a hand surgeon. You're pretty much an upper extremity surgeon because the brachial plexus, Explain. I want you to explain to our audience exactly where it is, but you go all the way up.
3: We do. We go from where the nerve exits the spinal column and out the vertebrae and all the way down to the arm. So all aspects of that are the things that my team members and I treat.
1: How do you, uh, when you are talking to somebody about a brachial plexus injury, how do you explain exactly what this network of nerves is and where it's located?
3: That's very simple. I start out with saying there are five major nerves that come from the spine out the vertebrae in your neck. Those five nerves come and coalesce into a variety of different patterns, and those nerves then control all the sensation and all the motor function of the upper arm.
1: And causes, the most common causes of brachial plexus injuries? I know you have a, a brachial plexus clinic, don't you? Yes, and, sir. And the most common things that you see for, in terms of injuries?
3: Most of the brachial plexus injuries happen because of high-speed motor vehicle injuries. When the head goes one way and the body goes another way, those nerves just tear right out of the spinal column and can cause serious, serious injuries and life-altering um, consequences for our patients. So uh, oftentimes the blood supply remains
1: to the extremity. You've got to have blood and you've got to have nerves. And the blood supply is, is most often okay, but the nerves are damaged or stretched or torn.
3: Yes. And uh, one of my colleagues says it's almost like pulling a radish out of the garden. And when you pull that nerve out of the neck, all the little rootlets that live in the spinal cord come out with that nerve. And in terms of blood supply, about 10 to 15 percent of patients will lose their blood supply to the arm and need an emergent surgery just to restore the blood supply so the arm lives.
2: Well, if you go along with the radish analogy, then you really can't put the radish back in the ground and have it not look like it looked like before. So, can you restore? A brachial plexus injury?
3: Yeah, absolutely. What you say is absolutely true. You can't take that radish and stuff it back in. Just like the old telephone cables, once you rip it out of a wall, you can't stick those telephone wires back in the wall and expect things to work normally. So there has to be a way to restore function. If it's ripped out of the wall or out of the spinal cord, what we do is a surgery called nerve transfers. So we take existing nerves at work, And we transfer them to more important nerves and muscles that we need to get function of.
1: So there are certain things, certain functions that are more uh, important in terms of function than others.
3: Absolutely, Tom. For example, elbow bending, just being able to bend your elbow is so important. If you add to elbow bending a little bit of shoulder function, especially external rotation to get the arm off the abdomen and a little forward flexion, you could do a lot with that arm compared to a complete paralyzed upper extremity.
1: So you're really not trying to get it all back. You're trying to do the best you can to restore as much function as
3: possible. Yes, I call it nerve economics. The more nerve resources or nerve... Fibers you have available to use, the more things you get back. So, if you don't have a lot of nerve resources, like all your nerves are torn out of the spinal cord, you can't do much. But if you have nerves that are partially attached to your spinal cord, you can use those as nerve sources to get better function of the upper extremity.
2: So, as you were saying earlier, the nerves, if they get stretched out, they don't go back.
3: Yes, it's almost like a piece of taffy. So when you pull them apart, you get that long, stretched segmental damage, and it doesn't spring back like a rubber band. So I tell people that are our patients there are three flavors of injuries. One is where the nerve is ripped out of the spinal cord like a radish. You can't fix those. You can't put them back into the spinal cord. The second type of injury is where they're torn outside of the spinal cord, just like a rubber band is being pulled really fast and it just snaps. In those cases, the nerve is still attached to the spinal cord, so you could use that as a source of nerve fibers to reconstruct function. The third type is that taffy that kind of pulls, and you may have some fibers still working or all of them not working, and in those cases, we could divide out or remove the injured segment and nerve graft that to get better function.
2: You just take the overly stretched piece and put the ends back in together?
3: Well, we take the stretched piece out until we see good nerve on both sides, and then we borrow a nerve from the lower extremity, typically a nerve called the sural nerve, which gives you sensation on the outside of the foot, And we borrow that small little nerve, and we cut it into various segments to equal the diameter of the injured nerve, and we use microsurgery to connect the ends.
2: As long as it's not pulled out of the spinal cord. If that happens, there's no fixing that. Absolutely. That Mm -hmm. is right on. Are we going to be able to fix that someday?
3: I hope we're able to. Uh we're doing some research on uh how stem cells affect recovery and that's a big hot topic in our world, but still not ready for prime time.
1: So this uh, this is not easy surgery. Uh so for example, tell us you say you do it through the microscope, right? That's correct. And how many hours would it take you to put a even a partially torn brachial plexus back together? Or so even a nerve? A,
3: ring? a partially torn torn brachial plexus uh also known as an upper trunk injury, can take three to four hours to repair, uh, or do nerve transfers for. A patient with all five nerves completely avulsed or ripped out of the spinal cord may take up to 12 to 14 hours, or sometimes longer, depending on what type of surgery is done.
1: But you have to have a little bit of a stump left of coming out of the spinal cord, or you can't, or you can't do it.
3: That is correct. We have to prove that that stump is still attached to the spinal cord, and we use intraoperative testing for that.
1: And how do you figure out beforehand? I suppose you can tell from the from the clinical exams uh, sort of what's wrong,
3: but how do you define exactly what's wrong before you go in there? How,
2: yeah, how do you tell the radish hasn't been pulled too far out?
3: <laughs> yeah, that's a super, super question. And I think the best way to explain that is we use various modalities. Our clinical exam can give us some guidance to whether they're ripped out or not. We get special X-rays Uh, like a chest x-ray, to see if the uh, diaphragm is paralyzed, and that gives us an indication of the status of the C5 nerve root. Mm -hmm. And then we get nerve testing uh, with uh, needles and nerve conductions to see how the nerves are reacting. And finally, our gold standard for radiographically imaging the spinal cord and nerve roots is called a CT myelogram, and that gives us an idea whether that nerve rootlets are still attached or not.
2: Can I just ask, because I absolutely have no idea, how big is this nerve that you're talking about? Is it the size of spaghetti or is it the size of a piece of thread? What is it?
3: Well, the nerve, uh, the biggest root is probably C7, and it's probably about the size of about four to eight millimeters in uh, diameter. Like a straw. Like a straw. Oh, it yeah. is. Yeah, that big. So, okay. And some are bigger than others, but then they coalesce and they Uh, get bigger, and then they finally taper out to sometimes very small fibers. Amazing what
1: these guys do, and it's not
3: easy, but you've got a team, right? I have a great team. Typical brachial plexus surgeons can include orthopedic hand surgeons, plastic surgeons, neurosurgery uh, people that do peripheral nerve fellowships, and as a team, we have a synergy that really one plus one equals three and not two in terms of saving time for the patient in surgery, a ability for a different set of eyes to see problems that one individual might not, and having a multi-specialty group is even more uh, beneficial because we play off of each other's strengths and we supplement each other's weaknesses.
2: Is surgery usually the way that these types of injuries are treated, a brachial plexus injury is treated?
3: Yes. Surgery is only there to improve functional outcomes Mm. or motor control. The other big problem about brachial plexus injury is the severe neuropathic pain that happens because of the spinal cord injury when the nerve is ripped out of the spinal cord.
1: Wow. Amazing what you do. And I know you've got a great team. We're talking with Dr. Alex Shin. He's an orthopedic surgeon, a hand specialist, and a brachial plexus surgeon. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears and talk about a little more common problem, carpal tunnel syndrome. You're listening to Mayo Clinic
2: Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. We're visiting with orthopedic surgeon and hand specialist, Dr. Alex Shin. We've covered the brachial plexus and all that can be done for the severe brachial plexus injuries that unfortunately are out there most commonly following a bad traffic accident. And now we want to talk about a different problem, carpal tunnel syndrome, which I suspect more people are familiar with than brachial plexus injury. Dr. Shin, tell us symptoms. First of all, you yep. see a lot of people who have uh, carpal tunnel syndrome and what, what do they complain of?
3: Well, Tracy and Tom, the most common symptom that patients uh, present with is the inability to sleep at night. They wake up with nocturnal awakening. Their hands are burning on fire. It feels like pins and needles and typically in the thumb index, middle and part of their ring finger.
1: Why just those fingers?
3: Because the median nerve is the nerve that's responsible for the symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome. It lives in the carpal canal and is being compressed.
1: Carpal meaning wrist.
3: That is correct. Uh And the other nerve of the hand is called the ulnar nerve, and the ulnar nerve really gives sensation to the small finger and half of the ring finger. So the nerve involved is the median nerve, which is in the carpal canal, and is being irritated, giving the symptoms of thumb, index, middle, and part of the ring finger numbness.
2: Is it only because of a computer that we have carpal tunnel? Did this not exist before computers were invented?
3: Well, that's a great question. And I would say that people that don't even use computers get it because it's a misnomer that just because you're a secretary or use your hands a lot that you get carpal tunnel syndrome. A majority of carpal tunnel syndrome is called idiopathic, which means we don't know why it happens. Some people get carpal tunnel syndrome because they have other disease processes like diabetes or hyper or hypothyroidism, which fills the canal up with extra material. But in the most cases, people just get it de novo. Are there, uh, wait, wait a
1: second.
2: (laughs) Just for no reason. There's no way to figure out why people have it.
3: Yeah. People will just all of a sudden start saying, you know, I'm getting a little bit clumsy. I can't feel the tips of my finger. I they'll say, that. I'm holding a cup of coffee in the morning or reading a newspaper uh, and my fingers go tingly. Huh.
1: That's why that word idiopathic is used so often. I, we don't know. <laughs>
3: uh,
2: that's not good. I just, I always thought it was because of computers or because of a repetitive use, like if you do the same job on a, an assembly line or something all the time.
3: Well, while those may be contributing factors, people that don't do those things often get carpal tunnel syndrome as well. I hate it when we don't know why. Well,
1: it's exactly like uh, somebody who's completely sedentary, their knee or their hip joint wears out, uh, and there's no good explanation for that as compared to the person who's done hard labor all their life, and their knee and hip joint don't wear out. So mm. there's a lot of things we still don't understand. Yeah, absolutely. Like all right, so uh, someone comes in. They've got tingling. You can tell from which fingers are involved, where the tingling is, what the likely cause is, which nerve is involved. But how do you, do you how do you nail down the diagnosis?
3: Well, there are several different things. Number one, everything is about physical exam. So you have to examine the patient, do various provocative tests to make sure that the nerve that's being irritated is definitely at the level of the wrist. The median nerve courses from the neck down through the arm, across the elbow through the carpal canal to the fingers. So it has multiple areas where, in theory, can be trapped. So you have to make sure you rule out those, courses of trap, those causes of entrapment prior to proceeding with a treatment for carpal tunnel symptom.
1: All right, treatment options. Surgery isn't the only option, right? At least for the first line of defense?
3: Absolutely. So uh, if you have mild to moderate carpal tunnel syndrome, various things can be done. Conserve measurements with... Splinting, holding the wrist in an extended position so that when patients sleep, they don't flex their wrist down and further uh, kink off their nerve. Or corticosteroid injections to decrease the inflammation around the tendons and making more room available for that nerve in that tight canal.
2: If that doesn't work, though, that's when you end up in surgery?
3: (laughs) Yes. If that fails or patients have symptoms that uh, continue to bother them, uh, we offer surgical intervention
1: used to always be that yeah it was open surgery so you made an incision on the palm side of the wrist and you opened up the ligament that was compressing the nerve and it took a while to recover from that but now isn't there a way to do it endoscopically so you use a scope through a a small incision
3: yes there are really three different types of ways of doing the surgery one is open the open has several options they call it mini open or formal extended open so one has a bigger incision than the other endoscopic can be done with a single incision or two incision technique and then there's a newer way that some surgeons are developing with their physical medicine and rehab colleagues called a ultrasound guided percutaneous or mini mini open technique
1: percutaneous means through the skin
3: that is correct which do you like well, that's interesting because uh, as a young surgeon, I was very onto to the endoscopic technique because uh, it was the newfangled thing. The recent studies show that the outcomes uh, are essentially the same of open and endoscopic, and it's really a surgeon preference and a patient preference regarding which one they choose.
1: So the results are the same. Why wouldn't a patient opt for the endoscopic or the mini-incision surgery?
3: Well... If you think about the short-term recovery, the endoscopic might give you a better return to work profile. However, it's never been proven with these prospective randomized studies. And so early on, we used to believe that they'd have less pillar pain or pain around their incision and for the endoscopic versus the open, but we've not been able to show that.
2: What about massage or acupuncture, okay, yeah. anything in there that's helpful?
3: <laughs> well, they'll t- I'll turn to medicine techniques. If they help and patients uh, demonstrate uh, good relief with them, I'll let them do that, and I'll buy it. Uh, however, I'm ready for them if it fails.
1: All right, one last thing, and let's talk about prevention. Is there a way to prevent this? Now, you said that people who have diabetes or thyroid disease are at increased risk. People who use computers, increased risk? I don't think so. Um, Any other risk factors?
3: It's hard to prove risk factors, but uh, I think that uh, I've seen very heavy laborers never get this, and I've seen very sedentary people that don't do any type of manual labor and get it also.
1: It's just something that happens. Not, no way to prevent it. You don't have any advice. That famous for word,
3: idiopathic. Idiopathic, yeah.
1: But you like can it. take care of it. <laughs> so, first line of defense is night splints, maybe. Night
3: splints. To splinting? keep the
1: wrist extended or in an up position. Corticosteroid injections, and they work pretty well. They right? work
3: very well. I actually had one
1: brachial plexus, carpal tunnel syndrome with orthopedic surgeon, hand specialist, Dr. Alex Shin. Great to see you as always. Great to have you on the program. Thank
3: Thank you. you very much.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll hear how eating breakfast regularly can help you control your weight. And later on the show, the dangers of eating red meat.
1: Want to hear more and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Menopause symptoms are not just for midlife anymore. That's according to a new Mayo Clinic study. The researchers gathered data from nearly 5,000 women. When asked whether they experienced any symptoms commonly associated with menopause, such as hot flashes and night sweats, many of the women reported having them well into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Dr. Peru-David says the number of women in the study who both reported and sought care for symptom management shines a light on what may be an unmet medical need for women over age 60. She says with increased awareness, clinicians can identify these distressing symptoms and review treatment options with women, which can lead to improved quality of life. And in other news, asthma is a relatively common lung problem, usually caused by allergies, heavy exercise, or chemical exposure in the workplace. But Dr. Alexi Gonzalez Estrada, a Mayo Clinic allergy and immunology specialist, says most people don't realize that heartburn could be making their asthma worse doctor Gonzalez Gonzales-Estrada says heartburn can irritate the airway and you're never going to catch that asthma if you don't treat your heartburn symptoms too. Heartburn is one of the first things he asks patients about when they come in for asthma treatment. He says there are two theories about why heartburn worsens asthma symptoms. First, there's the theory that acid goes all the way up into your throat, into your airway, and irritates those airways. Or the other theory is that acid irritates your nerves, which are connected to the same nerves that are in charge of coughing. So, the next time your asthma acts up, ask your healthcare provider if heartburn could be the real problem. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, I am sure you've heard it before, and you probably said the same thing to your kids. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It's true. I'm sure of it. (laughs) Eating breakfast helps fuel us up for the day ahead, and studies have shown that kids who regularly eat breakfast not only maintain healthier weights, but actually do better in school. Mm. Now, a study at Mayo Clinic suggests that eating breakfast regularly is beneficial for... Adults, too. Hmm. It helps you control weight gain, believe it or
2: not. I I do believe it. The study analyzed nearly 350 healthy adults and found that study participants who skipped breakfast were more likely to be obese than those who ate it frequently, which was defined as five to seven times a week here to discuss is one of the lead authors of that study, Dr. Nema Kovacian. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, a cardiovascular okay. disease
2: researcher at Mayo Clinic. Welcome
1: to the program. It's nice to have you here, Dr.
2: Kovacian. Thank you.
4: Thanks for inviting me here.
1: Dr. Kovacian, good to have you. There are lots of things that you probably could have studied. Why did you choose to study what people eat for breakfast and whether they eat it?
4: We know from the literature that uh, there is a, like an association between uh, breakfast consumption, weight gain, uh, and risk of being overweight and obesity in children and adolescents, as you mentioned before. But the literature in, in the adult's population is much less clear, is much more inconsistent. And uh, we wonder if that could be because uh, the population study in prior study included subjects with prior comorbidities, prior health issues, which may have uh, confounded the results. And also, the majority of all the other studies, uh, they simply ask the question, do you usually eat breakfast, yes or no? And we wanted to see whether there is actually an association between uh, the frequency of breakfast consumption, how many times you actually eat breakfast on an average week, and uh, all the body weight measures. Doesn't it? make a difference what you're eating for breakfast, not if you are eating breakfast or not? You would think so. And yes, most likely there is also a difference because we know that consuming breakfast doesn't necessarily mean consuming a healthy breakfast. You can have a donut uh, with cream, which is probably not the same as having <laughs> a, a, a bowl of fruit and a yogurt.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And uh, most likely we will be able to answer also this question because we have collected this data and we are in the process of analyzing it. And we are also in the process of analysing a number of other um, unhealthy um, lifestyle behaviours which are likely implicated in, in our findings in, in the risk of weight gain. For instance, we know that those who are more likely to skip breakfast are also more likely to engage in, uh, in poor lifestyle choices like um, smoking, um, poor nutritional choices, uh, excessive alcohol consumption, Uh, They tend to snack more frequently during the day, and they tend also to eat late at night. And all these factors are associated with uh, uh, increased weight gain and increased risk of obesity.
1: So the bottom line uh, of the study, uh, one of the things was that if you eat breakfast, you're less likely to be overweight or less likely to gain weight as you get older?
4: This was uh, a, uh, a cross-sectional study, so we took a snapshot of uh, of the data. We don't know if a longitudinal study will show the same results. When we asked our subject about the breakfast, we also asked if they had gained any weight in the prior year. And we... Um, we selected those who, um, who reported the eating gain, as uh, we classify them as um, having gained any weight if they gained at least one kilogram, which is a little bit more than two pounds. And we found that those who reported eating breakfast almost every day, they were also less likely to have experienced any weight gain in the past. And when we included in the analysis only those who experienced weight gain. Then we found a linear association between the frequency of breakfast consumption and the magnitude of weight gain. Because those who, um, who reported gaining weight but were eating breakfast almost every day, they gain only uh, about 3 pounds, less than 3 pounds actually in the prior year, compared to those who actually skipped breakfast who gain about 8 pounds, which is more than, more than double that. And how, how do you explain it? Well, we don't know whether uh, uh, eating breakfast is uh, independently associated with increased weight gain uh, or uh, whether it's a mediator in the process. Um, as Again, we are going to measure all the other potential factors implicated in, uh, uh, in our findings. But what we know from the literature is that, uh, and there is an increasing literature in, uh, in this field, we know that the timing of meal is very important for weight management. Uh, we know, for instance, that... Uh, uh, over the past decades, uh, we, t- uh, we have changed our eating uh, habits. We tend to skip breakfast more often, and we tend to eat more during, de- during dinner time, and we tend also to eat uh, dinner more late at night. And uh, this is unhealthy because our bodies are not... Uh, um, we have, we have an internal clock. We have a biological clock that tells us when to eat, when to rest, and when to exercise. And uh, biologically, we are not predisposed to eat during the, during nighttime. Uh, our body is biologically predisposed to rest, to sleep at night, not to process food. And when we eat at uh, nighttime, then our body is a bit confused, so it doesn't know how to properly process food. And all the biological mechanism implicated in... Um, in breaking down nutrients, are set for nighttime patterns, which are set biologically to uh, to fasting. That's so interesting.
2: So even your body knows, or your body knows what it needs when it comes to even the time of day that it yes, should be eating the it food. Yes, what it
4: and when it needs it.
2: Wow. And so the eating a big breakfast, it's been my experience that people who say, oh, I don't eat breakfast because then it just makes me hungrier all day long. It's uh, actually
4: interesting yeah. that those who skip breakfast are more likely to report to be on a diet. Um, really? Yeah. Yes, they're more likely to be dieters. Um,
2: so, possibly if people are considering going on a diet, they should be eating exactly, breakfast. Exactly,
4: because uh, if you, especially if you eat a breakfast full of like fibers, which make you feel fuller for longer, you're less likely to snack during the day, you're less likely to overeat at lunch and especially at dinner. So And also, obviously, during the daytime, you're more likely to consume the calories that you have uh, eaten at breakfast um, rather than just going to sleep and uh, having uh, those uh, excess calories just stored in your body.
1: You are a cardiovascular researcher, mm-hmm. um, and this is uh, one of the studies that you've done, but you obviously um, know a lot about what's healthy and what isn't. Do you know if that it's better to eat no breakfast than to eat an unhealthy breakfast?
4: That's uh, a question that I'm not sure how to answer. Um, the data in the literature and our study show that, on average, it's better to eat uh, rather than not to eat, regardless of what you're actually Even eating. Even
1: if it's a donut and what do you say, cream? For Which the sea, yes. <laughs> donut and orange juice. Sounds pretty good.
4: And the reason being uh, because, again, you are less likely to, uh, to arrive at like 11 in the morning and be starving uh, and then uh, overeating.
2: Um, I want you to study uh, sugar. Because sometimes it seems like if I have too much sugar with my breakfast, that sends me into the ditch for the rest of the day. Is there any research being done on the effect of sugar in our diet in this way? Um,
4: Yes, there is definitely a lot of research in that. But again, uh, I think... uh, that we have to consider that uh, eating breakfast uh, doesn't necessarily mean eating a healthy breakfast, mm-hmm. uh, and we know that. Uh, also, we know that uh, the, uh, the breakdown of calories throughout the day is, uh, uh, is not necessarily the same, uh, depending on uh, your nutritional choices. Um, and uh, while you should probably have about 15, 20 percent of your overall calorie intake during breakfast, uh, if you consume, uh, again, two donuts, uh, you're yeah. probably likely yeah. to exceed. Uh, not a uh, lot amount. of fiber
2: in those donuts.
4: Yeah, not much. <laughs> All right. What's the
1: perfect breakfast?
4: Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, if I had to make a guess, uh, I would say, uh, based again on what we know from other studies, uh, um, I would go for uh, a bowl of uh, um, probably whole grain uh, cereals. Uh, um fruit, um, and uh, an alternative would be uh, an omelette, eggs, which will be full of protein, which again uh, keeps you fuller for longer, and definitely some fruits.
1: or uh, whole um, grain protein, cereal so. and an uh, apple. That's what you yes, have for breakfast, exactly. right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Trying to be a good one. <laughs> All
1: right. The importance of eating breakfast with cardiovascular disease researcher, Dr. Naima Kovasa. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kovasa.
4: Thank
2: you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the dangers of eating red
1: meat. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Recently, researchers at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona decided to find out if eating red meat affects a patient's mortality. Does it shorten your life? Uh Uh-oh. In a review of six large-scale studies that tracked more than a million and a half people for periods ranging anywhere from five and a half to 28 years, the researchers found that a diet that includes red meat raises the risk of developing cardiovascular disease and cancer, as well as health problems like diabetes and high blood pressure.
2: This is bad news in advance of grilling season, isn't <laughs> Say it? Say it isn't so. Their review is published under the title, Is Meat Killing Us?, in the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association. And joining us on the phone from Arizona is the lead author of the Mayo Clinic Review, Primary Care Internal Medicine Specialist, Dr. Heather Fields. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fields. Thank
5: you so much.
1: Dr. Fields, good to have you uh, on the program. I'm not sure we want to hear what you have to say, but (laughs) go ahead and tell us about the bread meat study.
5: Well, you know, this was a clinical review of Um, epidemiological studies so these are very very large-scale studies um, like you said over a million and a half people these are not clinical trials so we can't prove any cause or effect with the studies that we reviewed but we can only see correlation but uh, that being said we do see more often than not correlation of um, increased risk for all-cause mortality and certain diseases um, with dangers of red meat, especially processed meat.
2: And what did the data show when you looked at all of these different studies together? Um, There's lots of different uh, conclusions that were made or pulled out of there, right?
5: Yes, there's several conclusions because we looked at several systematic reviews. Um, And so the problem with this is that there's quite a bit of heterogeneity, which means that uh, the the different systematic reviews were... um, we're, were done in studying and, and looking at different primary outcomes, so sometimes cardiovascular mortality, sometimes cancer incidence. And um, moreover, even the studies within those systematic reviews um, that they looked at, the cohorts uh, that they looked at also were, um, were quite heterogeneous. So it's hard to, um, to tease out and then try to compile this and, and perform a, a full review of it. Um, but more often than not, we see, we see association of um, red meat and processed meat with, um, with mortality and with uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer incidence, those
1: things. So co- cohort means what group you looked at. Um, but uh, were this all based on surveys? Did you survey different groups of people and ask them how much red meat they ate? Is that how you did it?
5: So we didn't survey anyone. We simply reviewed the literature. So okay. we used a librarian to look at these past studies. Now, the cohort studies did seem to usually, um, you know, nearly 100% of the time they were using surveys for people. Sometimes they would survey them only once, like at the beginning of the study, and sometimes throughout the course of their study if they were to, to move forward over the course of several years.
1: Now you indicated, I think that that there are some meats that are uh, more harmful than others. you said particularly processed meats?
5: Yes, processed meats, which would include bacon, sausage, deli meats, hot dogs, ham, um, or anything any kind of meat that would undergo um, some processing, curing, fermentation. In particular,
1: the really um, good stuff, oh, the yeah. good stuff, the
5: stuff everybody <laughs> really likes. Yeah. So those ones, we we see um, a very strong correlation with um, with mortality. And the World Health Organization even put out a statement in 2015 that they are um, not only probable or possible, but more of a, a definite cause um, for increased mortality, uh, specifically with um, cancer and, and colon cancer, moreover than any of them. Now, the increased risk is a relative increased risk um, of 18%, which means, um, uh, you know, it, it really increases your, your, your baseline risk for colon cancer from 5% to 6%. So we're talking small changes here, um, uh, for one individual, but over, over a population, um, it can make a big difference. And so I think that's why they wanted to highlight that and mention it.
1: Now that's my, not much difference. Pass the bacon.
5: <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> no. exactly. Um, hard to, yeah. Hard to, to make some convincing statements there from that.
2: Well, it is though, I mean, when you're talking about life expectancy and cancer, things like that, it, it does, yeah. uh, it does, uh, gather people's attention up.
5: Yeah, it sure does. It sure does, and and um, you know, it 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 kind of is a a pick your poison, pick how much, and uh, and also kind of comparing certain you know evil foods to other mm-hmm. less evil foods, rather than rather than making a, a blank statement. You know, I would say as far as, um, as overall diet is concerned, any processed food is going to be bad. Um, we just haven't simply studied other processed foods, whereas um, meat has been studied, you know, for just um, several, several decades. Um, so when you look at something like red meat that is unprocessed, you have to wonder, well, um, sure, maybe it does have this small increase in mortality, but if we compare it to other foods, say other processed foods, is it worse? I can't answer that. Um, I don't always advocate for a 100% (laughs) vegan diet, but I do advocate for a whole foods plant-based diet and then tell patients if they choose to include meat um, to focus more on um, on fish, those ones that contain you know omega three fatty acids, long chain omega three fatty acids, like um, salmon. salmon, like like salmon exactly. <laughs> Wild Alaskan salmon is the best, um, but other kinds of meats like red meat, I always tell them to choose grass fed, pasture raised, organic, without any hormones added. Um,
2: Ooh, and that that tastes a lot better. It <laughs>
3: sure does. <laughs>
5: It yeah, does. The, the fat content does change, but when you have a grass-fed um, uh, uh, meat, you have higher omega-3 fatty acids, and those are going to be better for you. So.
1: All right, so I guess it's hold the bacon and bring on the fish and the chicken. The chicken does. okay?
5: So far, as far as our epidemiological review, white meat did not have any increase in any mortality that we could see. I would say, you know, um, we don't see any problem with chicken based on our studies. Um, you might see some on some other clinical trials, and, and, it, and, again, it depends. If it's, you know, truly, truly cage-free chicken that's allowed to, um, uh, to roam on the, on the pastures and um, uh, is fed a, a, an appropriate grass diet, uh, then it's probably going to be better for you, um, hormone-free, those sorts of things.
1: All right, but processed meat is what you really ought to try to avoid.
5: Processed meat, I would say, would be the number one thing to avoid or at least cut down on and maybe save it for a special treat.
1: All right, primary care internal medicine specialist Dr. Heather Fields joining us from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Thanks so much for the update. We'll cut back on the red meat. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a
2: question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org.